Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Welcome to the Radioactive Show I'm Michaela And I'm back this week with the second of a two-part series Looking at the accidents in 2014 That brought the only deep long-term nuclear waste repository in the US to a halt We'll return to our conversation with Don Hancock from the Southwest Research and Information Centre in Albuquerque, New Mexico about the ongoing risks from the radioactive release at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant and his advice for Australia as the South Australian Royal Commission on the Nuclear Fuel Cycle prepares to look at nuclear waste storage and the possibility of an international dump. In the second half of the show, we'll speak with Annika from Friends of the Earth's Anti-Nuclear and Clean Energy Collective to see where things are at with the federal government's current process attempting to establish a nuclear waste dump in Australia. First, let's recap from last week. The world's one and only deep underground nuclear waste dump and it's been a spectacular failure. Two to 3,000 metres, linear metres, of underground tunnels in the mine are contaminated with radioactive materials and some of it also came up the shaft 2,150 feet from the underground up to the surface. It wasn't the federal government or the contractor operating the facility that told us radioactivity had escaped to the environment, it was the independent monitors. A fairly predictable problem of strong standards falling away over time and giving away to cost-cutting and corner-cutting. The issue is not just finding a site that appears to be geologically adequate, but that it actually can be successfully operated. You know, do we really know um, enough to know how to prevent this from happening in the future? Uh, and do we know enough, and even if we know enough, right, do we have a good enough system of security and independent monitoring and oversight to make sure that Los Alamos or any other site with this kind of waste wouldn't make the same similar or other kind of mistakes in the future? There's just a big mismatch between uh, human fallibility, which operates over periods of years and decades, and the half-life of nuclear waste, which we measure in millennia. Carved out from an ancient seabed, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, is a 650-metre-deep salt mine that was designed to take transuranic waste for 25 to 35 years, cost $19 billion, and isolate those wastes for 24,000 years. After just 15 years of accepting waste, operations were brought to a halt by two isolated incidents in early 2014. First, on February 5th, a truck caught fire underground, causing damage to workers from smoke inhalation, but fortunately it wasn't carrying radioactive waste. Nine days later, on February 14th, one of the drums which had originated from the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory burst open, causing a radioactive release, both underground and on the surface. A Department of Energy report on the process of restoring the mine to operating status 
estimate the costs to be between $390 and $551 million. Both the Department of Energy and the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory face penalties ranging from fines to a suspension of their operations, and the future of the site remains uncertain. Don Hancock has been following WIP for over 40 years, and he talks to us now about the ongoing risks for workers, public and environmental health, and the lessons for handling of nuclear waste around the world. Is there continuing radioactive release that are affecting workers and the public, and, and what are the key sort of safety issues there? So the levels of radioactivity in parts of the underground are very high, so much so that workers in the underground have to wear full protective equipment. If people have seen pictures of like Ebola workers with respirators and totally covered up with, you know, equipment to keep from being contaminated or clothing and and protective equipment to be contaminated, that's workers that go into the contaminated area of the mine have to wear that kind of equipment because they are in a highly contaminated area and they have to wear this to uh, not be contaminated. The current information is that none of those workers going in the underground with the protective equipment have gotten additional contamination. I'm concerned, however, about that because, as I mentioned, the thir- at the time the incident happened, there were 13 workers on the on the surface. They were all said to not be contaminated, and it wasn't until later that it was determined that they were contaminated, the same way for the additional nine workers on the surface. So I'm, I continue to be concerned about whether they're adequately testing and monitoring these workers to, in fact, know that they aren't being contaminated. But the official... Uh, view from the federal government and the for-profit company that operates the facility is the workers that are going underground now are not being further contaminated. In terms of the public, um, there was, the reason we found out, the reason the public found out about this radiation release and that there was act- actually radioactivity released is that there is an independent monitoring organization that has uh, air, air monitoring sites uh, close to um, where the release would come out of the underground or did come out of the underground. The federal government has been saying for four days there's something happened in the underground. We haven't been underground. We're not exactly sure what happened. It looks like there was some kind of radiation release in the underground, but nothing escaped to the environment. No people, workers, the public, equipment, nothing was contaminated on the surface. That was the line for more than four days. But then this uh, Carlsbad Environmental Environmental Monitoring and Research Center, this independent organization that does air sampling, released the results of their air samples that showed that that wasn't true, that there was radioactivity from the underground that they were collecting and that they collected in their air filter. So that's the reason we first knew it wasn't the federal government or the contractor operating the facility that told us radiation and radioactivity had escaped to the environment. It was the independent monitor. So I say all of that just to say the fact that we're, we were assured then, 14 months ago, we're assured now that nobody's being contaminated is not wholly credible based on, on uh, what, has, what has happened. 
but there there is a lot of contamination in the underground. There's no example in history of an underground contaminated, radiologically contaminated salt mine being decontaminated. Um, they're not actually trying to decontaminate the underground. They say what they want to do is try to kind of cover up the contamination with additional salt and other things to try to keep it in place. Uh, but as I say, their their goal is not to decontaminate the facility. They do say they want to get the level of radioactivity in the underground reduced so that they can reopen the facility and bring more waste in to put more waste in the underground area. Heard nationally on the Community Radio Network, this is a radioactive show. And Don Hancock from the Southwest Research and Information Centre is speaking to us about the recent issues with nuclear waste storage in New Mexico. In Australia here, we've had successful community campaigns that have stopped the imposition of a national nuclear waste dump. But uh, currently in South Australia, there's a Royal Commission and they're considering many nuclear options, including the possibility of um, opening an international high-level nuclear waste dump. And um, I'm just wondering what sort of advice you would give to those considering this kind of facility? Well, the history... Uh, that, so, in terms of a high-level waste repository, there is none operating any place in the world. Um, so, one thing to consider is, you know, do you want to be the first? And there are reasons that nations and people sometimes want to be the first in something, but sometimes that can be called to be the guinea pig or you know, the ones that are getting experimented on to see, do we know what we're doing here? So, A, I would encourage people to consider um, those ideas. So it hasn't been done successfully any place in the world, so that's the first point. Um, the second point is that what WIP shows and two other kind of intermediate-level waste sites in underground salt mines in Germany that also had operational problems um, is that the issue is not just finding a site that appears to be geologically adequate, but that it actually can be successfully operated. And as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, one of the clear disadvantages of having waste in an underground mine is that a mine in and of itself can be dangerous. You have mining accidents in mines in Australia, um, and other parts of the world do too. So when you combine the dangers of a mine with the dangers of radioactivity, in the case of high-level waste, much larger amounts of radioactivity than what caused this, these problems at the WIP site, so that raises the question, do we, really, do we really know enough? Have we developed a system that can make sure even during the operational lifetime you aren't going to have serious accidents, etc.? So I would encourage people to be very um, careful about thinking, A, that we know enough to know how to do this successfully, because they say all of the, there is no successful example in the world of operating one of these deep underground repositories without accidents. 
Um, and uh, so do we know enough about mining on the one hand and mine safety on the one hand and nuclear safety on the other hand and how they need to both work um, very well, if not perfectly, for these kind of facilities to uh, succeed and, and, you know, when that hasn't happened. Um, the concern, of course, is that, okay, this stuff is dangerous on the surface, it's going to be dangerous for a long time, so isn't it safer to put it underground? Well, in theory, yes, but in practice, not always necessarily so. And anybody that has operating commercial nuclear power plants are are creating more waste on an ongoing basis, and so there's also the question of how do you solve a problem when you keep generating more of it. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. And as regular listeners would know, the federal government's attempts to impose a nuclear waste dump on unwilling Aboriginal communities for the last 20 years has kept communities in South Australia and the Northern Territory and nuclear-free campaigners working tirelessly. It was with great excitement that the success story of Makati was announced in June 2014, with the federal government finally abandoning plans to build a national nuclear waste dump at Makati Station near Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory. After eight years of Makati traditional owners and their supporters struggling against the radioactive racism of the federal government, they took their struggle to the high courts and won. Despite non-government and civil society organisations repeatedly calling on Federal Industry Minister Ian McFarlane to stop the search for a centralised remote site and conduct an independent inquiry to consider the full range of waste management options, in November last year he announced a nationwide site nomination and selection process for locating a national radioactive waste facility. The National Radioactive Waste Management Project was launched on Monday, March the 2nd and is currently accepting nomination. It aims to shortlist nominations, assess preferred sites and declare a final location by the middle of 2016. Annika Nieprushk from the Friends of the Earth's Anti-Nuclear and Clean Energy Collective in Melbourne briefs us on the current process. Can you start by telling me a little bit about uh, how you got interested in this issue of the nuclear waste in Australia and a little bit about the research that you've done? Yeah, um, I'm part of the Anti-Nuclear and Clean Energy Collective at Friends of the Earth in Melbourne. And um, since currently the Australian government is looking for a new site um, to store Australia's radioactive waste, um, I thought it would be worth looking a bit into how they're going to design this process and how things have been done in the past in other countries. Um, So in my research, I'm looking at other international examples and what we can learn from their experiences and um, basically which aspects of these um, stories could be incorporated in Australia's search for um, a nuclear dump site. Hmm. And firstly, can you tell me about uh, where the process is at now in Australia with the federal government uh, attempting to establish a national 
nuclear waste dump site? Well, the Australian federal government has um, tried to um, find a site for a national nuclear waste dump for a long time and has now um, finally um, failed at um, establishing a site in Makati last year and then had to um, basically design a whole new process um, and find other options on how to find a site. And um, they have agreed on a voluntary process, which is also the most common approach um, internationally at the moment and have called for um, site nominations by any Australian landowner. Um, The call was made on the 2nd of March and is open for two months and is actually closing on Tuesday, 5th of May. Hmm. And so what happens after that date? On the 5th of May, will they announce any nominations or what's, what happens after that? So they have given themselves some time to shortlist candidates and on their website the government um, announces to publish any um, site nominated and the landowner. Um, However, I think we have to track that um, because it hasn't been in the media overwhelmingly much and it might happen that the government would just um, want to keep um, the names of those um, landowners and, and the respective geographical sites, you know, undercover until they've made a short list. Um, so I think it's important for us um, to monitor and try to get these, um, in, this information actually already in the course of next week. Mm, absolutely. Broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network, this is the Radioactive Show, and we're speaking with Annika Nieprashk about the federal government's current attempts to establish a remote national nuclear waste dump. You recently prepared a background paper uh, about the, the federal government's waste dump process. What were some of the key issues that arose in, in looking at that? Well, first of all, we have to say that um, basically moving to a voluntary process is a great step um, that the government um, has experienced now that they can't um, just impose a nuclear dump site on any community, but that it has to be a voluntary process. However, um, there are a few um, issues that are worth looking at throughout the whole process. So first of all, Basically, the government only asks for landowners to nominate and not for a whole community or municipality. So that means that even if a landowner um, thinks that maybe his land is suitable to host a nuclear dump site and it might geologically be suitable, but his next-door neighbours would totally not want um, a a nuclear dump site in their backyard, then there's very clearly a conflict there. And... um, since nuclear waste is, has such special properties, really, it is a matter of involving the whole community um, and finding a way on how to include them from the beginning in the decision made and then throughout the whole process. And the first step in doing that would actually be to raise the matter if a national nuclear waste dump is even in um, wanted in Australia because there are other options and the government has never really looked into other options but has always followed 
um, the approach that there should be a centralised national nuclear waste dump instead of maybe having several decentralised sites. Because currently um, Australia's nuclear waste is stored in over 100 um, decentralised sites, mostly with the generating facilities of that particular waste. And they are securely um, stored at the moment. So it would definitely be an option to look into maybe using some of these sites and expanding them instead of moving around all this dangerous waste throughout a really vast country just to store them then at one site. There's also a few issues in how to engage with the communities once um, a suitable site has been found. So the government has stated that it is intending to um, engage with the community, but it has never said that it seeks the consent of the local community, which basically means that there is no local democracy at place, there is no deliberative democracy. You know, the community um, decision or um, opinion on this issue doesn't have to influence the process, um, which is really a pity if we're looking at that this is supposed to be a voluntary process. So in the end, if that happens, then it is not really a voluntary process. It is imposed on a community again. And we can't say if that is going to happen yet, but it is a possible scenario. And the um, other issue that compromises the voluntary process is that a lot of states and territories in Australia actually have state legislation in place that prohibits nuclear waste from outside that particular state or territory to be um, stored on state land. So that doesn't actually leave a lot of room for finding a site. So the um, places that have state legislation in place are um, South Australia, um, Victoria, um, the Northern Territory, WA, and Queensland has a policy in place for that. So that basically just leaves New South Wales, um, the ACT, and Tasmania as places where a dump site could be nominated without conflicting with existing legislation or policies. So that's really an issue that has to be followed up um, and maybe um, has to be risen with the local politicians in those states in case we find any nominations coming from those places. Okay, great. Well, that's something we'll be looking at closely into the future. This is the Radioactive Show across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're speaking with Annika Nieprash about the federal government's current plans for dealing with Australia's radioactive waste. The South Australia Royal Commission into the nuclear fuel cycle have begun their research process and one of uh, the things that they are looking at for South Australia is the possibility of nuclear waste uh, storage and I'm wondering what they might learn from this uh, federal government attempts to impose a a national nuclear waste dump. I think the number one lesson to be learned is that it is not easy to find um, a site 
that is both um, geologically suitable to host a waste dump um, for radioactive waste or uh, and also um, fulfills the criteria of um, the local community agreeing to it. So throughout the last 20 years of Australia trying to find a dump site just for its national waste, um, this has been a really difficult process and had to go through many phases and had to start over and over again. So trying to even store international radioactive waste in Australia might be totally set up for um, even more challenges. And then there's also the point that I had risen before that South Australia actually has state legislation in place not allowing it to store nuclear waste from outside the state. So basically the Royal Commission is now looking into an illegal issue which is a matter in itself really. Hmm. All right. Well, um, were there any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah, I just really hope that this process is going to take the community's view um, into regard properly and um, that Australia can move forward um, and set its intention of not imposing a nuclear waste dump on any community into practice and engage in a really participatory way um, with the communities and let them be part of the decisions made Um, because otherwise I think um, this process is going to be flawed in the future as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this week's show. We'll be following the nuclear waste dump campaign closely and keeping you up to date on any developments. And we'll also continue investigating plans for how to deal with the growing stores of nuclear waste at various sites around the world. Thanks so much to Don Hancock and Annika Nieprashk for joining us on the show. You can learn more about the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant at the Southwest Research and Information Centre website, that's sric.org, and about nuclear waste in Australia at foe.org.au backslash antinuclear, or the Beyond Nuclear Initiative website, and that's beyondnuclearinitiative.com. This week, I got along to an exhibition called Japanese Art After Fukushima, The Return of Godzilla, which was part of the Climate Arts for a Safe Climate program. Unfortunately, the exhibition will be over by the time this goes to air, but they do have a free forum at the Deacon Edge in Federation Square from 6 till 8 p.m. next Thursday, the 7th of May, and it's called Who Speaks for the Earth? Energy, Politics and Art, and it will feature the famous nuclear-free activist Dr. Helen Caldicott as part of that panel. If you'd like to expose yourself to the realities of radioactive racism and the environmental impacts of the nuclear industry, please join Friends of the Earth's Radioactive Exposure Tour 2015. The tour to New South Wales and South Australia will depart from Melbourne on Saturday 27th of June and return on Wednesday 8th of July. From the Blue Coast to the Red Desert, this year's RAD tour will visit two operating uranium mines, 
Australia's only reactor at Lucas Heights, the former proposed nuclear power site at Jervis Bay, the Woomera missile testing site associated with the British atomic bomb test, hotspots of uranium exploration, historical sites of resistance, Lake Eyre, the Mound Springs, Flinders Ranges and much more. So to find out more or register, please go to radioactivetour.com or phone Hannah on 0424-626-774. Please check out our Facebook page, The Radioactive Show, for links from today's show. And if you have any questions or would like to get in contact, email us at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nations and is broadcast nationally through the Community Radio Network. Please tune in again next week for more news and information on nuclear peace and energy issues. And until then, take care. <laughs>